So with ads, people are predisposed to kind of fight against it. Like, don't manipulate me. I'm going to find the, the holes in it. With people, we're actually predisposed to trust one another and we're predisposed to be agreeable and maintain sort of social harmony and to like one another. And what's so interesting is that we tend to forget that and we tend to think that when we're trying to influence people, we're in that ad mindset. Welcome to the Marketing Millennials, the no BS marketing podcast. I'm Daniel Murray, and join me for unfiltered conversations with the brains behind marketing's coolest companies. The one request I tell our guests, stories or it didn't happen. Get ready to turn the f*** up. Internal marketing is one of the most underrated marketing skills. Today, I chat with Vanessa Bones, the author of You Have More Influence Than You Think, a professor at Cornell University, and a former advertiser at Ogilvy. Today, we chat about how to be more influential in the workplace, why saying no is not a bad thing, and why people actually like you more than you think. Enjoy the episode. When customers book demo calls and don't show, it's a waste of time and money. But it's a problem Chili Piper can fix with the most advanced booking software on the market. Book a demo today at chilipiper.com forward slash millennials. Hey, Vanessa, welcome to the podcast. Hi, thanks so much for having me. I want to get started and ask you about your journey because you actually started in advertising and then wrote a book. So I love to hear that journey and how it came about. I was kind of obsessed with advertising since I was very young. When I was maybe 16, I wrote a letter to like the local advertising firm in my tiny little town in New Jersey and asked if they would take an intern. And they were nice enough to bring me on in this tiny little ad agency. And I even wound up, you know, after being there for like a summer, having this ad published in the local paper for a bank, which I was very proud of. And then I went to undergrad in psychology and I still had this idea that I would go into advertising and out of undergrad, I wound up getting my dream job at Ogilvy and Mather, working in advertising, in account management. And, you know, even for this entry level position, like interviewed with, you know, seven people to get it at like the age of 22. And it was like such a big deal to me, you know, go down to New York City, move there, you know, go to uh, work at this ad agency that I had glorified. And then I actually wound up hating my job. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, I think what happened is I was in an account management, which was like the entry level position. And we really didn't do much of anything we kind of like just dealt with people and the coordination aspect and I felt like you know it was all about like placating clients and trying to keep the creatives on task and it was I never felt like we actually did much and one of the things we got to see though was the market research people and they would, you know, present their work on like, you know, we tested this out and people prefer this kind of slogan or people we've seen research that shows us. And I always thought that that was so fun and interesting. And they would do things like focus groups in, in addition to these sorts of surveys. And so I was really interested in sort of transitioning into market research, 
but everyone in that department had a PhD and I did not, you know, I was fresh out of undergrad and there was really no entry level position there. And so I kind of just gave up on advertising for a little while and tried a bunch of different things and then eventually found myself back in graduate school getting a PhD in experimental psychology, still with this sort of idea that I would go back into advertising and be in market research. And then I just fell in love with actual research, just teaching and academic research and the kinds of studies that I was having a lot of fun running and publishing. And they were all in the domain of social influence. In the end, you know, that was, I think, about, what, 15 years ago now that I started doing that. And so in the last year, I kind of summarized what those 15 years has taught me about influence in my recent book. There's two ways that people think about influence is the external influence, like the influencers today. But I want to ask you because an underrated skill for marketing is influencing in the workplace, internal selling. So how could someone become more persuasive and influential in a workplace environment? Yeah, it's so true that we think there's like two audiences, right? Especially if you're in marketing or advertising where there's the external audience, I'm going to sell this product. And then there's the internal audience, you know, I need to sell my coworkers on my idea about how to sell this product. So one of the distinctions I make in my book is this distinction between ads, which people are sort of preconditioned to not be persuaded by, right? We have to fight like psychological reactants and this idea of, I don't want to be manipulated. And so you have to kind of be creative in your ways of not invoking some of those, those psychological barriers, right? When you're advertising outwardly. And there's a distinction between that kind of selling and then people. And so the book I wrote, which is You Have More Influence Than You Think, and it's all about how we underestimate the influence we have, is really focused on the influence we have with other people, often in face-to-face contexts, often in these kinds of meetings or, you know, these internal selling examples or situations. There's actually the opposite issue and the opposite sort of psychology. So with ads, people are predisposed to kind of fight against it, like, don't manipulate me, I'm going to find the, the holes in it. With people, we're actually predisposed to trust one another and we're predisposed to be agreeable and maintain sort of social harmony and to like one another. And what's so interesting is that we tend to forget that and we tend to think that when we're trying to influence people, we're in that ad mindset. Like I have to come in guns blazing. I have to really, you know, pull out all the stops and know all these tricks and things like that. When in fact, to influence just people, we often can do it in pretty subtle ways, just if we're honest and direct and genuine. And so a lot of the research I talk about in the book goes into these psychological biases we have that kind of convince us that we have to be extra loud and make this whole big spiel to get people to, you know, agree with something we have to say or believe or, you know, go with some idea that we have when often a more gentle approach where you just kind of lay things out, let people think about them um, is often more effective. And that we tend to think that, you know, we have to be perfectly articulate 
to sell our ideas. Otherwise, people are going to think, you know, or they're not going to be convinced unless we're like super competent at expressing them. When in fact, people just get the gist of what we're saying and are more convinced by our warmth and just how much we, you know, they like us and how genuine we're being than by this kind of more salesy, like I'm going to, I have the perfect argument. I'm going to convince them with the perfect facts and say things perfectly. And in the end, we make it harder on ourselves, I think, to actually convince other people of things than we need to, right? Often just kind of stating our ideas is enough if we're willing to kind of speak out and say them. I like that distinction because I even see people in the workplace, they come up with this like whole sales pitch to pitch someone internally. Even internally, there's this political game people play when some of the best people I've seen are just super nice people who just generally care about people in the workplace. Question I have for you is how could someone that's in entry level or younger in their career or less experience influence people, leaders? And then the opposite question would be how should leaders be more influential in the, in the workplace? A lot of people who are at the entry level or just in a you know lower level position feel like people above them just aren't going to listen to them. They feel like they have so much to prove to sort of convince the people above them to listen to their ideas and take them seriously and that you know they belong there. And there's there's some interesting research where researchers have asked people, do you think that people who are older than you or more sort of you know wise than you would take your advice? Or do you think that people of the same age would be more likely to take your advice and want to hear your advice? And people think that, you know, oh, older, wiser people, and you could sort of translate it into like, oh, people who've been in the business for a while have no interest in what I have to say. I can't tell them anything interesting and I don't have, you know, much to offer. But I think people my age and younger or at my level and younger, they are the ones who will really take my advice. But it turns out when these researchers asked people that, that's what they thought. But then when they had them give advice to people of sort of different levels, in this case, it was ages, that everyone appreciated having advice from someone who knew about a certain topic. And so we think that, you know, the only people who actually want to hear our ideas and our advice are kind of below us. When in fact, anyone who is at that upper level can tell you, like, you know, you want to hear what the people sort of on the ground are seeing and experiencing and know, like you want to get advice and information. And so one of the things that people can do in order to have more influence when you're kind of at the lower level, right? We think of influence as being more about like the authority and and that is part of it, but it's also about things like there's something called informational influence. And so that is basically like, I just have access to information. I know what's going on in my area really well to the point where I can give people good intel on what's going on down here. Right. And that's really, really useful to them. And then they see me as this essential person who they can go to, who can, you know, knows what they're talking about and has good ideas about this thing. So informational influence is actually really powerful. And it's something we often forget. We think it's like really about authority. Do you have that position? But it's also like, do you have the information? Do you have this knowledge that is useful to people? Another one is just social influence. And so that comes from 
people who just know people and network and they may not have, you know, it might be less about like, I know so much about my particular area, but I am friends with a bunch of people. I network with a bunch of people. So I kind of have a sense of what's going on in lots of different areas and I've made an effort to connect with people. So they like me and they listen to me and I have some more influence, you know, on a sort of a wider, like it's like a breadth kind of thing. And so that's another way is by networking, getting to know people and becoming an expert in that particular area that you have. Those are two ways to, to develop influence without that authority position. And then you mentioned, you know, when you're at the top, when you do have that authority, right? A lot of us, what's interesting is, you know, by the time you make it into an authority position, by the time you make it up sort of the ladder, right, you've often fought so hard to get there and you felt like you had to prove yourself all along the way that once you wind up in this sort of power position or this influential position, many of us feel like we still have something to prove. For example, if we're, you know, in a meeting discussing something, we'll feel like we have to have pretty early on a really good idea that proves why we're in charge, right? So we're going to come up with this idea like, here's a suggestion. When in fact, a lot of influence at the top is about holding back and not jumping in and giving your thoughts right away, but letting other people give their thoughts and encouraging them to feel comfortable kind of opening up and sharing. And then responding to those thoughts and consolidating what the group has been saying and sort of analyzing what the group has been saying as opposed to directing the group in a certain way because we forget that people see us as an authority figure they don't want to go against what we say so if we come up with an idea you know they're not going to be like oh i think that's a bad idea and so sort of the more space you can give for other people to share their ideas the more influential you are from this authority position a lot of people to get are challenged with the balance of people liking them versus having to say no to them or tell them that they can't do something. So how do you balance the liking versus having to say no to some or having to have a hard conversation with someone? How do you balance those two? A lot of my friends have said when they make it up into these kind of positions where all of a sudden now they're in charge of a bunch of people and people are coming to them asking for like resources or, or whatever they're asking for, you know, that the hardest thing is saying no. And first of all, I think there's a few things that are really helpful to know. One is that it's really hard for people to say no, even when you're at the top, right? Because you do, you like the people who are asking you often and you want them to like you, right? There's a whole bunch of psychological things going on there that make it hard to say no. We think, it's hard to say no when you're kind of on the bottom of the ladder, but it's also hard on the top. But people actually dislike you less than you think. In other words, like you more than you think. If you say no, right, then we tend to worry about. So we really worry that like, oh my God, I'm going to say no and then they're going to hate me forever. There's kind of like that, um, you know, that's an extreme way of talking about it. But we that's like the knee jerk reaction is like, oh my God, they hate me now. They get over it pretty quickly. They find another way to do what they need to do, or they might even come back and ask for something uh, in a different way or a different kind of thing that you can give them. And part of that is saying, I'm saying no to this, but having 
some opening, like, but if you came to me with this other thing, that might be something we could do, right? Giving them another sort of way to accomplish whatever goal they're trying to accomplish by asking you for something that you have to say no to in that moment. And then the other thing that I think is really, really helpful for everybody, no matter what level, is my uh, colleague, Erica Boothby, has this finding she calls the liking gap. And this is the tendency to think that other people like us less than they actually do after we interact with them or, you know, have some sort of conversation with them, whatever it is. She's done studies where she has two people talk about something and each person leaves that interaction and says how much they think the other person liked them and how much they liked the other person. And she finds this gap, right, this difference where we think other people like us less than they actually do. And we like that other person more, right, than they think we liked them. So everyone kind of of walks away from these interactions being like, oh, my God, I did all these things wrong. I asked too many questions or didn't ask enough or I shouldn't have asked for that thing. They said no to it or I said no to that thing. They're going to be so mad at me. We all kind of walk away and are paranoid that other people are judging us really negatively when in fact, they usually are judging us much less negatively than, than we think. And so in general, I think we're a little too hard on ourselves in situations like this. What about the flip side where people come off that they actually do like you when in fact they have a t- that fakeness that they come in the workplace? And then how do people deal with that? Because I've seen, came off of some interaction being that person loves me they like me so much and then I hear in the grapevines that it was a facade so I'd say the sort of liking gap findings are on average right most of the the findings in the literature are these averages and there's always going to be these instances that don't follow that pattern right where you get kind of the opposite where you walk away being like oh that person loves me and then you hear that they've been saying mean things after the fact I'd say those kinds of things don't last too long, right? If if it's the first time you sort of interacted with someone and then you quickly realize like, oh, wait a minute, they were being totally fake with me. You're probably not the only one who's experienced that. And that person is probably going to develop a reputation and not be able to get away with that kind of um, facade for a very long time, you know? So I think there's kind of the short-term effects of pretending that you feel a certain way about someone and then the long-term effects where it's like, okay, you know, years from now, everybody kind of knows that this is the way this person is and they can't get away with it anymore. And so you're not having that, you're not making that mistake anymore because you know that when they do this or that, that they're really being fake, you know? So I do think that there are these reputational elements if you aren't actually genuine, but most people genuinely do want to be liked and, one way to be liked is actually to like other people. And so it kind of even without this kind of tit for tat kind of thing, it just kind of wires in us this desire to trust people and like people, not always, but sort of more than we tend to, th- to give people credit for. I know how frustrating it is when customers book calls and don't show. It's a waste of time and money. That's why I'm impressed at how Chili Piper is fixing the problem through their advanced booking system. And it's not just booking. Chili Piper also boosts conversion rates and generates more calls. Brands like Airbnb and Gong are seeing great results, and you can too. 
Book a demo today at chilipiper.com forward slash millennials. That's chilipiper.com forward slash millennials. The thing I feel most confident in where I would, I you know, maybe it's not a hill I would die on, but it's like, I would be shocked, right, if my recommendations on this didn't wind up being true or these findings didn't wind up replicating long term because my main area of research is on asking for things and I've been doing it for over 15 years now. We've run studies where we've had our participants ask other people for things and at this point they've asked over 15,000 people for things and we find this really consistent effect that Again, I would just be so surprised um, and I feel so confident at least coming up with recommendations from it. And so the basic effect is that people think other people are more likely to say no to them than they actually are. And we've had our participants ask strangers for favors and guess how likely they are to you know, do them these favors, whether it's donating to charity filling out a survey that they have to get filled out, uh, borrowing their cell phone, you know, walking them to a certain location that they pretend not to be able to find. So all these different things, people think that, you know, people are going to be rejecting them about twice as often as they actually are when we have our participants make these requests. And interestingly, we've had them ask strangers. We've had them ask friends. We've had them ask and different ways. We've had them offer money. Like we've done so many variations of this. And I'd say the biggest takeaway is that people say yes more than we think. And so on the one hand, if you need something, people are more likely to do it for you than you think, right? On the other hand, part of that is because we find that it's hard for people to say no to like find the words. If you imagine yourself on the other side, someone comes up to you and they're like, hey, I'm in a bind. Could I borrow your cell phone? Even if you don't want to give them your phone, it's awkward and you have to come up with the words and it's this kind of like, what do I say? So there's kind of two takeaways. Like if you need something, people are more likely to do it for you than you think. At the same time, if you're asking someone for something that they feel uncomfortable with, they find it harder to say no to you than you think. That to me is just a really strong finding. And then the other biggest finding in that area is that this is really true face-to-face, but not over email. And so I think this is something that's helpful in so many ways to know is that when you talk to someone face-to-face, they're so much more likely to say yes than if you email them. In one study, they were 34 times more likely to say yes face-to-face than over email, which was just a huge effect. But our participants in that study thought that it would be about the same, that the compliance rates or the yeses would be about the same no matter how they asked because they thought what people do is they kind of weigh the costs and benefits and decide whether they want to do something. When in fact, people base a lot of their decisions just on emotion and connection, like social connection. And so if you're standing there face to face with someone asking for something, it's a lot harder to say no to someone's face. You also trust them more because they're right there in front of you. There's just more of a social connection. And so it's really hard to say no. An email you can ignore, right? Or you can come up with the perfect way to say no if you feel like you need to respond to it. So it's just so much easier to say no or avoid doing something when the request comes over email. Do you see that same effect 
over Zoom than in person, because over Zoom, you might not have the same, you're not in person, you know, have the sit, you can't see every social cue that they're having. They don't, they can't look anywhere else to ask someone else an answer. So that'd be an interesting thing to see if, do people say more in per, I mean, yes, in person more than over Zoom, because I'm interested in that. We actually did those studies as well. During the pandemic, a lot of people I know had to quickly change the way they were studying things or all of a sudden new questions were kind of even more interesting to people. And so one of the things we did was to actually look at this question now that so many people are using Zoom and the phone and I guess mostly Zoom uh, as opposed to the phone, but we wanted to test the phone as well. We did a couple studies where we compared face-to-face to Zoom to the phone to email. We wanted to sort of understand what it was about each of those uh, modes of communication that might change compliance rates. So we didn't know if it was like the face-to-face element of Zoom, like is that what's important? Or is it the fact that it's a synchronous uh, medium where two people are talking at the same time and so I have to come up with my answer on the spot? So that could be the phone and Zoom, right? You ask me a question, I have to answer you right there. But with Zoom, I actually see your face, so I would have to say no to your face. So we're like, which of these things is going to be most important? So we compared all these different media. And what we found was that nothing beat face-to-face, just like hands down, standing in front of someone face-to-face is way more effective to get what you want than any other kind of medium. But if you don't have access to someone face-to-face, which I mean, there's plenty of times we just can't meet with someone face-to-face. Zoom and the phone were both just wildly better than email. So email is like the worst thing. And it's funny because when we asked people, they thought they would all be almost the same. They definitely didn't think there would be huge differences between these different types of media. And I think part of it is like we think that when we write an email, we can, again, be super articulate. We think that's really important. I can articulate my thoughts. I can make a really clear argument, something that like is going to clearly convince someone. But anyone who's been on the receiving end, like we don't even read emails that carefully, right? And so much of it is not about the perfectly articulated thought. It's about just a conversation and kind of just seeing where someone's coming from. And there's so many, as you said, nonverbals when you're in person, even more than over Zoom. And so we don't often realize how much of a difference it makes, but it does, in fact, seem to make a huge difference in person. I could definitely see that. I think... I'm just thinking about people breaking up with people and it's just e- people do easily do it over email because they avoid that or text back in the day. There's some, cause they avoid that human to human interaction and it's harder to say no to someone or articulate that, but it's so much easier. And this is actually pretty interesting because I think it just gives when people are saying, stop these sales events or these in-person meetups and marketing it's actually we probably need to go meet our customers still and we probably need to go talk to people face to face because we build that interaction and then also customers can come up with a ridiculous response and because even me when i'm on email i can weigh pros and cons i haven't hours to respond i could talk to 20 people before giving an answer um or that's in b2b especially that happens a lot who has been inspiring you in this space of um psychology social psychology 
who are some people you look to? A major one who I'm sure most listeners will be familiar with is Bob Cialdini, who is the godfather of influence in many ways and just a brilliant researcher. He's been, he's really so impressive because he connects lab work, which is really just rigorous and can tell you like this is the real cause and effect of what's happening right now to a lot of field work and a lot of just on-site sort of experience where he's actually worked as like a car salesman and all these kinds of domains that he wants to apply his findings to. And so he really has just done this amazing job of sort of spanning these different areas. So you feel like when he makes a recommendation, he knows how it works in the lab and what the real cause and effects are. He knows how it works in the field and it's been tested. And then he knows sort of how practitioners are going to use it. And so I, his book, Influence, is just still one of my all-time favorite books and I think is really amazing. So Bob Cialdini is like an old guard, classic sort of researcher. And then sort of a newer guard, newer researcher is Erica Boothby, who I mentioned earlier, who has this liking gap study. I talk about her work a lot in my book and now a lot. She's inspired a lot of my own research because... So much of her work is about the false impressions we have of how other people see us. So we often think about like how we form impressions of other people, but we're constantly kind of figuring out how other people are forming impressions of us. And we're often wrong about how that happens. And we're often wrong in this way that makes us overly self-conscious and sort of makes us a little antisocial and not want to speak up or feel like people aren't paying attention to us or feel like people are judging us in ways that they really aren't. Her work has been really inspiring because I see a lot of connections to my own research in terms of this general theme of like underestimating your influence. Like it's honestly just been so reassuring to me personally because so much of her work has made me realize that when I go into a meeting and I think I say something stupid or I think I articulated something really awkwardly, no one else is thinking that. Everyone else is just like, okay, Vanessa said that, got it, check, you know, and it's just made me feel more comfortable speaking up and voicing my opinion. It's made me more comfortable even just showing up and knowing that like me being there is meaningful. And so her work has just been really, really inspiring and reassuring to me. I'm going to read some of her work because I like that liking gap theory. And also I've struggled with going into meetings and people saying no to me or people actually caring deeply what I'm saying when really they're not caring as much as you think. So what is one thing you would tell someone starting out right now in their career that they will thank you five years from now? On the one hand, I think a lot of the stuff we've been talking about, I wish I had known back then when I was first starting because I felt so inconsequential in a lot of ways, you know, and I felt like I didn't trust my gut as much as I probably should have. Like there were, you know, it's I, I'm all for sitting back and listening and not just jumping in if you have nothing to say. But at the same time, there are a lot of times where I was like, it's weird that we're doing things this way. This seems so inefficient or like this other way seems better. And I think I held back a lot because I didn't trust my own gut and I didn't think that I could really persuade people or that they would really listen to me if I spoke up. And so I think trusting yourself and just testing out 
some ideas that you have. If you don't come in being like, I know better than everybody and I have this all figured out, right? If you're just like, I noticed this. I'm just curious, right? If you foster sort of this curiosity about the world around you when you see things that seem a little odd, sometimes you'll strike something that other people have just gotten used to and just been doing because everyone's always done it that way. But your idea for how to do it might actually be helpful. So I'd say trust your gut, speak up from a place of curiosity instead of just holding it in or instead of like trying to prove yourself. And then I think the other thing that I really kind of needed to know at the time and a lot of my students as they graduate like to hear is that you just never know like you you take a step forward and you see where it takes you and you reassess constantly right you never know like where your next step is going to take you and how you're going to feel it's really hard to make decisions and say like you know if I'm choosing between two jobs or two places or going back to school you could drive yourself crazy in a state of indecision But usually if you just make a decision, you'll know pretty quickly whether it was the right one and it'll take you to another place. And eventually you'll look back and make sense of the whole story and say like this led to this and this. You know, as I said, I I went to advertising thinking that was my dream job and I would have never thought that this encounter with like market research, which I hadn't really thought of as advertising, would shape my entire career years later. And not even directly, like I went and worked in a sleep lab and I worked in elder care and all these other things that were like peripheral and eventually went back to school thinking like, well, I did like that job that someone else had a few years ago when I was starting out, you know, just doing stuff gives you information about the other stuff you might want to do, basically. Where could people find your book, where people could find you? Um, And yeah, I just want to give you time so people could find this awesome book that you wrote. Thank you. Yeah, you can go to my website, uh, which is Vanessa Bonds, and Bonds is B-O-H-N-S. So vanessabonds.com. And there's contact information for me there. I'm on Twitter, at Prof Bonds, Instagram, at Prof Bonds. And also on my website, you can find links to all the different places you could buy my book, which include, you know, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, all the usual places, hopefully your local indie bookstore. Cool. Thank you so much for this. It's been awesome. And I think this is going to be extremely helpful for people in the workplace. So I appreciate you coming on. I really hope so. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks so much for listening. Tune in next week to hear more great insights from marketing schools operators. If you haven't already, please consider subscribing to the Marketing Millennials podcast and giving it a five-star rating. It helps bring more marketers into our community.